In addition to 2018 being the 80th birthday of Superman, it's also the 25th birthday for Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, a title that seems sillier and sillier as time goes on. Lois and Clark is equally loved and loathed in equal measure. A number of the hardcore Superman comic book fans don't like that Lois and Clark is essentially a rom-com version of the Superman legend, but there are an equal number of people for whom Lois and Clark is Superman. One thing is certain, the producers of Lois and Clark knew it couldn't compete with the big-budget special effects of the first three movies, which had starred Christopher Reeve, so they decided to update and expand the legend, focusing more on the romance between Lois Lane and Clark Kent, and giving it a then-modern update. Lois Lane was a tiger in the newsroom, go-getting and impulsive, but a mess away from the job, barely being able to balance her checkbook or walk and chew gum at the same time. Clark, meanwhile, was more worldly-wise, intelligent and curing. Prefiguring the WB network and, latterly, the CW, Lois and Clark also de-aged the characters slightly, making them attractive singletons in their early 20s. Every superhero TV show casting decision since Lois and Clark debuted in 1993 can be firmly attributed to the success of Dean Cain, who played Superman, and Terry Hatcher, who played Lois Lane. Hatcher was the first internet pinup, whilst Kane's image adorned many a teenage girl's wall. For the first season, Lois and Clark took its cues from screwball comedies and TV shows such as Moonlighting and Cheers as much as it did from the comics. Whilst the series was positively post-crisis in that this Clark was the real deal and Superman was a fancy suit and a sly wink, the show aimed for wit, fun and sophisticated banter over earth-shaking catastrophes and supervillain rampages and, in its first season at least, it largely succeeded. The pilot movie for Lois and Clark is immense fun, setting the stall out for the series straight out of the gate, with Superman only appearing in the last 15 minutes, the story instead focusing on establishing Lois and Clark's adversarial but attraction-based relationship, and setting up that Lex Luthor will be the bad guy. Ignoring a few loopholes, such as why Clark wears glasses as a disguise before he's Superman, the pilot is a strong one, and whilst its tongue is firmly in its cheek, there's an earnestness to it that any good Superman project needs. The following episodes were just as good. Strange Visitor has G-Man Jason Trask, played by Terence Knox, turn up in Metropolis trying to locate Superman who he feels is a threat to national security. A never-ending battle sees Luther, played here by John Shea, testing this new Man of Steel's limits. These three opening episodes taken together work as a full pilot for the show, as after these three, the series would adopt a more era-appropriate done-in-one approach to the main plots. I'll accept my favourite episode of the series, episode 8 of season 1, The Green Green Glow of Home. Written by Bryce Zabel and directed by Les Landau, The Green Green Glow of Home takes its title from the popular song The Green Green Grass of Home, which has been sung by numerous people over the years, but is primarily known as a Tom Jones song. 
Bryce Zabel has credits on Dark Skies, Mantis and The Crow TV show, but he was also supervising producer for Lois and Clark for the first season. Les Landau seems to have made the most of his career working in the Star Trek trenches, doing first and second unit direction for The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager and his last directing credit, Enterprise. This episode ties into the earlier episode, Strange Visitor, which sees the return of the aforementioned Jason Trask. The teaser, or cold open, or pre-credits bit, whichever you prefer, is the only glimpse of Superman you will get for the entire episode. There's a previously calling back to Strange Visitor, in which we are reminded that Trask suspects Clark of being Superman, and then we are into the action. Superman stops a carjacking, performing some minor super feats, such as lifting the front of the car up, and then catching a volley of bullets. Man, don't nothing hurt you? Not so far. This minor dialogue exchange and the on-the-nose ominous lighting effect are economical ways of reminding the viewer that this Superman is thus far invulnerable and that something is about to happen to negate that. We may as well take a moment to look at this version of Superman, given that this one and a half minute scene is, as I've said, all we'll see of him. Kane has much shorter hair now than in the pilot, a change that led to the comics of the time giving Superman a longer do than his traditional short back and sides. His costume is relatively comics faithful, although it does look very homemade, which fits in with this version, where Martha made the suit for him just so no one would be looking at his face. As such, the S bunches up when Superman folds his arm, like the stitching is a little threadbare. The reds and yellows are nice and colourful, offset by the darker blue rather than the powder blue Christopher Reeve wore. For some reason, the boots are burgundy, not really matching the cape or the trunks. Speaking of the trunks, Kane never did look comfortable in the suit, and the trunks and behelt perhaps contribute the reason why. The trunks are briefs, very small and cut high on the thigh to give him the appearance of having longer legs, but the belt is cloth. Unlike the belts of previous Supermans, it just doesn't look right. They would redesign the suit a few times over the years, and this is a massive improvement on the suit he wore in the first few episodes, but this outfit never really worked as well as it could. Part of it is Kane. He never owned the suit in the way other actors to portray Superman have, but part of it is the design. In addition to the trunks, the boots are quite low on his calves, and the S-shield is far too big on his chest. Henry Cavill could pull off a massive S, but Kane doesn't have Cavill's bulk. A word also about Metropolis, as we won't be spending a lot of time here either. This was the Warner Brothers backlot in Burbank and was just around the corner from County General Hospital from ER. So Metropolis is near Chicago, apparently. In Smallville, Wayne Eyrig, neighbour to Jonathan and Martha Kent, pops over to show Jonathan a big old piece of green rock he found on his land. Apparently, he stupidly told the government about it, and they are on their way, so Wayne wants to leave this with Jonathan so they won't take it away from him. And cue the credits.
Clark uses Wayne Eyrig's story to con Perry into letting him go to Smallville to report on this incident, because the feds have visited Eyrig and are now tearing up his land. Perry thinks this is a good story, but Lois doesn't want to go. Clark is suddenly distracted by Jimmy fooling around with a NASA prototype, which is a signal watch he can use to call Superman. Why Jimmy has a NASA prototype is never explained, but give yourself an extra point if you realise that this is only here because it will need to pay off later. After this, however, the signal watch will never appear on the show again. Lois and Clark head to Smallville, where Lois takes every opportunity to mock rural life. Clark takes it all in good humour, and whilst the writing isn't as snappy as Moonlighting, nor the banter as quickfire as Sybil and Bruce, Kane and Hatcher do have a nice rapport. Purely on an aesthetic level, Hatcher is incredibly cute in this episode. She has a much fuller face and figure than she would do in later seasons, and the Bob Her style she wore this season frames her face beautifully. Her massive, soulful brown eyes help in this regard as well. Clark and Lois reach the Irig farm, only to find that this is a non-story. The Environmental Protection Agency are here to simply mop up some pesticides. This is all a lie. Jason Trask is illegally interrogating poor Eirig to find out what he knows about the meteor. Trask is an immoral scumbag who actually works for somewhere called Bureau 39, and Terence Knox is a little bit too campy to be taken entirely seriously. Still, he uses his position to get what he wants, and when he's told that nosy reporters Lois and Clark are snooping around, he's delighted. After all, where they are, Superman can't be far behind. At the time, Smallville is hosting the Corn Festival, much to Lois's amusement, and Lois and Clark drop by for some more big city girl versus small town boy humour. A word here about Smallville. This is another of the Warner Brothers back lot, but this one is a lot more familiar. It spent seven years as Hazard County in the Dukes of Hazard, and is but a few years away from spending seven years as Stars Hollow in Gilmore Girls. It's quite amusing to see Clark and Lois walk past Miss Patty's dance studio and Luke's diner. They bump into an old flame of Clark's, Sheriff Rachel Harris, who, with her red hair and prom date backstory, is Lana Lang in all but name. The script I found online for this episode never had a mention of Lana, but the character is far too similar not to be at least influenced by her, so I assume that the name change is down to rights issues. If Lana is considered a Superboy character rather than Superman, ownership of the character could have still been with the Salkins, whose Superboy TV series only went off the air a year or so before this episode was aired. All of this corn-fed fun proves too much for Lois, and she reckons that Smallville must have a seedy underbelly, accusing that one guy over there who's flipping hot dogs of being a cross-dresser. Clark is most amused, as that is his dad, and he introduces Lois to Kay Callan as Martha and Eddie Jones as Jonathan. Jones and Callan are a long way away from the WB-friendly John Schneider and Annette O'Toole, but they suited the show very well and make a pretty good combination. When they finally get a moment alone, Jonathan shows Clark why the feds are giving Irig a hard time. He opens a casket to reveal the green rock, and for the first time in his life, Clark doubles over in pain. The Green Rock seems to affect Clark, making him weak and robbing him of his superpowers. Intriguingly, and unique to this episode, Clark doesn't make an instant recovery when he moves away. Rather, he remains powerless for a while, even if he does feel a little better. Clark and Lois continue to investigate, confronting the team tearing up Irig's farm over Smallville not being on the list of pesticide-infested places. 
Lois smells a rat. A government cover-up shaped rat. But the liaison, Miss Sherman, has all of the necessary paperwork. Needless to say, Tenacious Lois isn't giving up, but we'll leave it to Trask to dole out the necessary exposition. I have reason to believe there's a very important meteorite here in Smallville. Meteorite? Why do you need to keep it such a secret? This, Miss Sherman, this was retrieved from Smallville, Kansas, 1966, not far from here. The meteorite probably landed at the same time, but it wasn't discovered till this recent storm. Follow me so far? Good. It's reasonable to assume that this meteorite is probably from the same planet as Superman. Krypton. It's all right here. Not of earthly origin. Periodic element 126 emits an extremely high band radiation that doesn't seem to affect humans. However, it's my theory that if a Kryptonian is exposed to any piece of this material for any length of time, the result could be lethal. Why kill Superman? He hasn't done anything hostile. His existence is hostile. He's the advanced man. The public relations guy. He's here to soften us up for the hordes to come. Now do you understand? To be fair, this is actually quite a tight script. Of course, we in the audience all know it's kryptonite. But Zabel only reveals information throughout the script slowly, giving Clark and Lois a decent mystery to chew over, and keeping them in the dark as to the real villain. Clark has no idea what the rock is, or that Trask is here. It's an episode that keeps the viewer invested and interested in the story, watching the characters figure out what we already know. Trask has Irig call Clark, but given that he's reading from a script provided by Trask, the stilted delivery makes Clark even more suspicious. As Lois digs deeper, there's a lovely conversation between Clark and his parents that really sum up how this show was different and right to use Jonathan and Martha as Clark's sounding boards. Clark seems curiously unconcerned over losing his powers, his feelings of belonging and fitting in far more profound in this version of Superman than in any other. Martha is more concerned. Normal for Clark is being super. Jonathan is the glue in the middle, inviting caution and keeping a level head. These scenes really work and make Clark more interesting as a result. He's a proper flesh-and-blood character in this story. And then Lois shows up in a tight country dress and cowboy boots, and every guy in the audience suddenly forgets what they were doing. Back at the planet, Perry sends Jimmy down to Metropolis to take photos. Jimmy was a curious beast in this first season. Actor Michael Landis looked far too old to be a teenager, but he didn't seem to have a clearly defined job. Does he just hang around the Daily Planet hoping to cop off with Cat Grant? Back in Smallville, Lois and Clark start nosing around and are grabbed by Trask's men. So what exactly is our plan? You sound like one of those people that has to have their whole life worked out before they can live it. So you don't have a plan? Of course I have a plan. Let's hear it. As soon as I figure it out, I'll let you know. Okay, here's the plan. And we know that whatever they say they're doing is not what they are actually doing. So we'll just stay here until we see them doing it. Should have brought some lunch. Great plan. If you have a better one, speak up. There goes the picnic. Just in case you were wondering, this wasn't in the plan. I had a hunch. Who are you guys? Who do you work for? Do you know who we are? 
so many questions. And from someone in such a precarious position. Trask, what are you doing in Smallville? Now here I was just wondering the same thing about you. Our newspaper sent us to investigate an EPA cleanup. You're not here for your environmental virtue any more than I am. You know it and I know it. What have you done with Wayne Irig? Let him go. Yes, you see, small town ties mean a lot. Any other man would have given up his contact in a minute, but this man, this man took sodium pentothal, a couple of broken fingers, and he still wouldn't talk. Then it came to me. Let him go. You're not as clever as you think you are. I knew she was a fake all along. Really? How? Too competent for the government. How'd you get into this, Sherman? You know, you are really starting to get on my nerves. Get her out of my sight now, please. Did they recruit you? Did they tell you you'd be working for the government? Oh, shut up. Instead, you're just a thug. Is that what you wanted out of your life to be a thug? Lewis, relax. <clears throat> Back at the Kent farm, Wayne Eyrig shows up as Martha and Jonathan are discussing what to do with the rock, when Trask arrives, grabs the rock, and takes the Kent into illegal custody. Trask thinks that Kent has some connection with Superman, and demands to know what it is. With his parents in trouble, Clark comes clean, telling Trask that he is Superman. Trask points a gun at Clark, who practically shits himself, which clues Trask into the idea that Clark is lying. And I've seen this. I did some research and found a script for this episode online, but unfortunately it's the third draft, so pretty much the same as the Erd version. There's minor alterations to dialogue and small edits here and there, but no major scenes missing. This is the only real difference. In the script, we cut to ads after Trask calls Clark's bluff, but in the editing room, somebody made the decision to go to commercials after Clark says, I'm Superman, which makes for a much better ad break. Kudos to the editors for that decision. Curiously, I haven't mentioned Dean Cain much other than to talk about his Superman, but Cain made a really good Clark Kent, particularly in episodes like this one where he's allowed to be more relaxed and casual. It's a different Clark in this show, as Lois mentions. Gone are his ties and suits, this is a double denim wearing Clark, and the easygoing nature of the character comes through. Cain is also good in the scenes without powers, and he really does look panicked here when Trask threatens to shoot him. Jimmy arrives and goes to Sheriff Harris, having seen Clark being bungled into a van by Trask. It was a nice touch that Jimmy took his photos before going to rescue his friends. Everything starts to come together nicely. Lois convinces Sherman to let her loose, and Sherman does because throughout the show she's had her doubts about Trask. These doubts were better expressed in the script, but for some reason every single line Sherman has throughout the show where she expresses doubts about him, and then when she opens up about how insane he is here with Lois, a cut. The editors also rearrange some scenes and tighten up others to make this lead into the finale more fast-paced, proving once again how valuable the editors are to work like this. Jimmy uses the signal watch to call Superman as Trask sets fire to the eye-rigged farm with the Kents in it. Clark, hearing the signal watch, clues Clark into the notion that he has his powers back. This isn't as convenient as it seems. Throughout the show, it's been established that Clark, as he feels a little bit better, slowly is regaining some of his powers. Earlier on, he used a ring-a-bell machine to get Lois a toy, and as he progressively got better at it, he managed to hit the bell harder, causing it to go higher and higher each time. Some subtle writing and acting there, showing that the powers are coming back slowly. Clark escapes and frees his parents, using his super breath to put out the fire. Trask witnesses everything. 
Don't take another step. Those are fighting words, Mr. Kent. Or should I call you Superman? Secret identity, now that's very clever. You're going to prison, Trask. For murder, for kidnapping, for abuse of power. Oh, but I'll tell everyone your little secret. I don't care. This ends now. I agree. The question is, for whom? You think you're better than humans, don't you? Lying around, also perfect and superior. Well, those days are over now, aren't they? You're wrong! No? As it happens, you are wrong. It's over now, and I have won, and this little piece of home is going to be the death of you, Superman. Unfortunately, I won't be able to stay for the services. Clark fights through the pain and hurls the kryptonite into the lake where it explodes upon impact, for some reason. I mean, yes, it hits a rock, but would not like kryptonite just dissipate in the air, making it worse for Clark, especially after they both end up in the water after the fight. Ah, yes, the fight. Perhaps uniquely for the time, Clark does not change to Superman. He ends up in a fist fight with Trask that totally works. There isn't a reason for him to change. He doesn't really have his powers, and Trask knows he's Superman. The Kents know he's Superman, and Irig is still tied up facing the other way, so he can't see what's happening. Clark even loses his glasses in the fight, rather than implausibly keeping them on throughout. I would argue this finale works better for not featuring Superman, as it means Clark doesn't have to explain why they weren't seen together, and emphasise that this is a story about Clark. The ending, by not featuring Superman, demonstrates Clark's heart and humanity, and how that humanity contrasts with Trask, a man who is judging Superman by his own standards and finds himself coming up woefully short. Clark emerges from the battle victorious. The script says that this is because he fights like a man with everything to lose, but he leaves Trask alive to face the music. Trask is about to shoot Clark when, in a scene that seems directly lifted from Die Hard, Sheriff Notlana shoots Trask dead. All that's left is the wrap-up. And in the end, Jason Trask's obsession caused him to search for a mystical rock, he alone imbued with destructive powers, and to confuse one reporter with the target of his fixation, Superman. He came to see this strange visitor from another planet where he was not, and to see enemies where there were none. It was an obsession that but Jason Trask would prove fatal. You know, I've been in newspaper business 35 years. This is the damnedest story I've ever seen. You should have been there. Here is a man who was so far around the bend, he started beating on Clark to get to Superman. Well, you know, Clark, I usually advise my reporters to say clear of their stories, don't get involved. But since you got in a fight with this nutcase Trask, well, I'm just happy you came out on top. Thanks, Chief. Too bad this didn't work. Oh, don't give up on it. Superman was in Metropolis. We were in Smallville. Now, are you sure you don't want to share the byline on this one? Uh, yeah, Chief. I'm too close to it. I'd like Lois to tell it the way she sees it. Well, Lois, and I only got one note for you. Now, this rock that Trask convinced himself could hurt Superman, what's it called? Called? You want a name? Nobody can even find it. Even the sample that Irig sent to the lab disappeared. I don't know if it ever even existed anywhere but in Trask's mind. Even so... This copy would sing a lot sweeter if you gave it a name. Well, Trask thought it came from the planet Krypton. 
I don't know. Kryptonium? Sounds good to me. Wait, it's a meteorite, right? What about kryptonite? Oh, okay. You two fight it out. You are always editing my copy. Okay, next time you fight the bad guy and I'll write the story. Okay, kryptonite. So, CK, now that you won the big thrill in Smallville, how you feeling? I'm feeling super. line is actually sold by Hatcher, not Kane. Oh, his delivery is fine, but her eye roll at his terrible pun is what makes the gag work. When Lois and Clark started, it was a pretty good show. It seems pretty tame now, but back then it was a revolutionary new take on the concept, every bit as dynamic as the Benedict Cumberbatch version of Sherlock or the J.J. Abrams Star Trek. This was a really modern, of-the-now version of a 50-year-old property, and for a short time, it held pretty true to its original concepts. The early days of the show benefited from the involvement of the Superman offices over at DC Comics, and this is perhaps why the first season is still the best. Mike Carlin, then the editor of the Superman Comics line, and Jeanette Kahn, then the publisher at DC, offered notes on the pilot, and many of the Superman creative types appeared in the show as extras. This tit-for-tat, or tat-for-tit, also meant that comics altered slightly to accommodate the series. The wedding of Lois and Clark in the comics was postponed to coincide with the launch of the series, and there were cosmetic alterations as well, such as updating Jimmy's look to make him more modern, giving Lois haircuts to look more like Terry Hatcher, and giving Clark longer hair. Sadly, it couldn't last. By season two, the show descended into camp far too much, and its time slot meant it never really could get as raunchy or as adult as Sam and Diane or Maddie and David. I lost interest halfway through season three, and even though I own all the DVD sets, there are still episodes I've never seen. What Lois and Clark did show was that there was life in the concept. A new take on an old favourite could work, and work well. The next new version of Superman would be Smallville, a series that really owes a lot to this one episode of Lois and Clark, in that it would focus very much on Clark's Smallville life, his relationship with the Kents, and it would successfully milk this idea for a decade. The next new version of Superman on TV is, as of now, unwritten. With Superman starring in big-budget movies, he's largely been off the table at TV, despite the ever-growing complement of DC Comics-based television shows. Even with the debut of Supergirl on television, it seemed like Superman was verboten. Thankfully, the producers saw the folly of their ways, and Superman, played by Tyler Hooshlin, made his small-screen debut in the second season of Supergirl. Interestingly, Hoshelin's take on Clark and Superman owes just as much to Dean Cain as it does to Chris Reeve, showing that Lois and Clark is perhaps more respected than one would think. Hoshelin sadly doesn't get to play Superman over a long-running TV show, but his appearances have been warmly welcomed by fans. Perhaps Lois and Clark is due a reappraisal. Sure, the series is wildly inconsistent, its story arcs were conceived in the early days of that being a thing, and as such a ill-defined, and it's a tad campy in places, but as this episode showed, when it was good, it was very, very good.
ever read uh, a Superman comic? Not in the last few hours. Oh, uh, I was just checking, right? Just checking. Hey, everyone. My name is Michael Bailey, and I have been a fan of Superman for as long as I can remember. In 1987, I started collecting the Superman comics as a going concern, which led me down a long and winding comic book-filled path to 2007 when I first started podcasting. Well, it's 2017, and because it's been 10 years since I started podcasting, and 30 years since I started reading Superman full-time, I thought it might be fun to start a new show called It All Comes Back to Superman. It All Comes Back to Superman will be my monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith, where I will pick out something about the Man of Steel and discuss it. Sometimes I'll be alone. Sometimes I'll have a guest. No matter how many people get involved, Superman will be the focus. It All Comes Back to Superman is part of the Fortress of BaileyTube podcasting network. New episodes will drop on the 28th of every month. This show and all of the other programs that are part of the Fortress of BaileyTube podcasting network can be found at www.fortressofbaileytude.com. Perhaps appropriately, the email bag opens with an email concerning the last time I touched upon Superman's 80th birthday, the Watchtower of Glittering Delights, is by uh, is sent by Chris Franklin. Hi, Chris. Hello, Andy. I have an episode dedicated to me, and I had to make sure I wasn't dead after hearing that. My breath on a mirror proves I'm still currently among the living. Great discussion on the Justice League. You picked some great episodes. A Better World is the series at its best, and I still get goosebumpy when Superman catches the mini-sun and rises with his returned powers in Hereafter. I laughed out loud at your dissing of Lobo. I have no use for the character either, but I think he was used very well on Superman the Animated Series and the Justice League, but maybe we should have just left him alone altogether. I do pity you though, my friend. Having never experienced the wonder of Super Friends, you missed a key component of enjoying the JLU episode Ultimatum. The Ultimen were all based on the made-for-TV character additions to that TV series, Apache Chief, Black Vulcan, Samurai and the Wonder Twins, Zan and Jaina. The featured leaguers in that episode were the core Super Friends, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman and Aquaman minus Robin. With that nostalgia, the episode would probably play quite a bit better. Uh, yes, it may be. I think Mike Bailiff texted me about that as well. Yeah, as you mentioned, completely over my head. Never saw Super Friends, never got it in this country. So all of the hate that people seem to have for the Wonder Twins, I don't get because I don't know who they are. Just, I, don't have, I don't have that affinity for it. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's not that Ultimatum was a bad episode by any stretch of the imagination. It was a very enjoyable one. Um, as my first Justice League Unlimited episode, though, I did feel it didn't have the depth of the two-parters. But I'm confident that that will change as I watch more shows. You're in for quite a treat when you do watch all of the JLU. Yes, the hour-long stories are gone, but the connective tissue between episodes strengthens, but not to the detriment of episode-by-episode enjoyment. The second season ultimately wraps up the Cadmus arc, which dates back to the end of Superman the Animated Series, and then the final episode of that season, Epilogue, wraps up the entire Timverse, going all the way back to Batman the Animated Series on leather wings, at least visually. Oh, that sounds interesting. Hmm. Is that the one that also has um, Batman Beyond in it? Because, oh, uh, yeah, that... Mm. I've got Batman Beyond on DVD. I bought it in Florida last year, so I'm slowly working through that as well. 
Chris continues, but then the show got picked up for another season. So Tim and co went back to the idea of the Legion of Doom, again from Super Friends, or the secret society of supervillains from the comics, but still managed to tie the ending back to Superman the Animated Series. It's fantastic stuff. And speaking of animated shows, did you know the Royal Flush Gang in Wildcards were voiced by the cast of the original Teen Titans, who are now also the voices on Teen Titans Go? Does this cycle never end? Anyway, great episode on Superman and Justice League. It was nice to hear someone else talk about it, which involved no work from me. And that was from Chris. Uh, as I mentioned in that episode, and will continue to mention, uh, Chris and Cindy do the JLU cast, where they're watching every episode of Justice League. So far, there's been three episodes, I believe. All of them have been great fun, and you should go and check that out, because I am. great. For, always great to hear Chris and Cindy. My next email is Palace of TV I've Love. It's from Keith Mason. Hi, Keith. Hello, Andy. How are you? I'm tickety-boo. It's been a long time since I've emailed a podcast, but as each episode of the always excellent Palace comes out, I realise I had to put fingertips to keyboards and say hello to the hardest-working northern chancer in podcasting. Seriously, Andy, how many podcasts are you on? Uh, far too many. <laughs> the audience will agree. Uh, Keith then goes into a breakdown of uh, the episodes that I've been talking about. On the jazz, like you, I was part of the generation that the A-Team dominated the weekend's TV schedule. It hasn't really aged all that well as an action show, but your viewers a cartoon. It improves in retrospect. It's quite amazing how long these shows went on for, but I always feel a nostalgic warmth when I see it on the TV Guide screen. Thank you for the reminder of a classic bit of TV fluff. Uh, yes, yeah, since I recorded that episode, Channel 5 have picked up the AT. So it's currently on like three or four different channels. Saturday afternoons, Channel 5 will show an episode, or 5 Star, or 5 USA have shown one on, on Sunday. So it is out there for you to check out an episode or two. The Man, The Machine. Street Talk is another show I remember well, or at least I think I do. Beyond the opening credits and the high-speed effects for Hyperthrust, I'm not sure I remember anything about it. And your episode left me with the impression that, that maybe, just maybe, I'm better off for that gap in my memory. Good Cop, Crazy Cop. I watched the first season of Lethal Weapon with my wife, the mighty Rosie, hi Rosie, when it aired last year and really enjoyed it and was pleased to hear it had survived the cull between seasons. I had the start of season two of the Lethal Weapon series on my planner for a week or so. Another two episodes had arrived by then and was humming and hawing about putting it on because I'm an indecisive bugger at times. I listened to your episode eager to see you talk about something more recent and found myself agreeing with almost everything you had to say, including your apprehension of the adaptation. Whilst I've never had a gun in my mouth moment for the last five years, I have been battling depression. Oddly, podcast listening and my blogging are directly connected to that battle, but that's another story. Watching someone take slow steps forward and backward and struggling, despite many wanting to help, rang true. And I remember the series being so well done, as well as tons of fun, so that night I put the season two opener on and once more I'm hooked on the series. I don't know whether to thank you or blame you. Nah, it's thanks. Yeah, the second season of Lethal Weapon has been um, a curious beast. It seems to be exploring Martin's dad issues with his father, which is such an overplayed trope in American fiction. But again, I've got to give all credit to the Lethal Weapon writers that they're doing it well. And uh, once again, Riggs is finding it very difficult to move forward when things keep trying to drag him back, in this case, his father. So the second season is different, but every bit as much fun as the first season. The indestructible Captain Scarlet. I missed Thunderbirds the first couple of times, but caught Stingray and Captain Scarlet when I was younger, and it's Scarlet that left the impression. 
dark, violent, and at times melancholy. It was not what a lot of kids' TV was back then, or in fact now, and that has left me with ideas to seek out shows from my past that I could share with my boy. Captain Scarlet, I, I think that'd go down well with lads, I really do. I think it's proper boy's own action. Um, I don't know what the new Thunderbirds is like. I've seen it on the Disney Channel once or twice, and I've not, I've not disliked it, but it's never hooked me enough to keep watching it. But, you know, maybe that'd be a good one for, for a younger child as well. It seems good. Seems okay. Speaking of, continues Keith, Spider-Man on the telly. In order to avoid an early Saturday morning watching Pokemon or the risible Iron Man armoured adventures with my son, I scoured the internet for the Spider-Man TV shows based on your fur but positive assessment of two episodes. Didn't find them, but did find the pilot which I showed him, half expecting him to get bored, but he was fascinated, asking questions and enjoying the... I don't know if action's the right word, but he really got a lot out of it and thinks you expect... Sorry. But he really got a lot out of it, and the things you expect to date it, effects and fashions and the like, were fine. But it was the dodgy directing that really stood out. Again, it was a nice reminder of things I remember, and the outfit looking homemade just added to the story. Was it fine art? No, but it was fun. And some days that's in short supply on TV. That's another thing worth mentioning, I think, that a lot of these old shows that perhaps don't hold up terribly well to us with adult eyes, show them to kids. You know, kids probably love them. You know, some of them are probably a bit slow by today's standards, but there's a lot of stuff nowadays that you can't watch with children. You know, it's nice that the new Lost in Space seems quite family friendly because Discovery, you know, I mean, none of my kids were really interested in Discovery, but it didn't seem particularly family friendly. Superman and his amazing friends. This I finished listening to this morning. I'm a big fan of both Justice League and Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, and they're great examples of being able to put the best of comics into the TV medium. Justice League gave me something that I'd never thought of before. Superman was always the model of compassion, of inspiration, and a dozen other virtues. But in this cartoon, he was also the model of restraint. Restraint isn't something you think of about Superman, but considering how powerful he is, he must hold back an awful lot. The Justice League and Justice League Unlimited episodes which pitted Superman against Darkseid showed what Superman was really capable of and what it would mean if he lost his temper. I'm watching along with the JLU cast, another excellent show by the ever-present Chris Franklin and his wife Cindy, and can't wait to get some of the later episodes watched. Thanks for the great podcast listening. I have a dog to walk now, so I'm touring through a lot more than I used to, so you being on so many podcasts ends up working fine for me. Ta-ta for now. Keith Mason being me so you don't have to... And uh, he's put a link in the mymarvellifepresents.com, which Keith blogs on, which is always a good read. I always enjoy reading what uh, what Keith has to say. Our next and final email for today is from Dan Doherty. Hello, Andy. As usual, hearing you talk about Spider-Man is music to my ears. In the latest episode of The Palace, you mentioned picking up all the amazing Spider-Man Marvel masterworks digitally on Comixology. I don't own a tablet yet, but that's another story. I own a near-complete run of Spider-Man Essentials, I'm just missing Spectacular Volume 1. In addition to that, I also have all the Spider-Man epic collections, the three big ASM omnibuses, and the original five Spider-Man masterworks, released in the late 80s, early 90s. I thought about trying to track down the set of the Spider-Man Marvel Masterworks, but the later Masterworks are $75 per book and have a completely different trade dress, unless you get the variant covers, which do match up with the earlier library editions. Do I really want to spend a metric foot-ton of money converting from Essentials to Masterworks? And should I wait to see if Marvel puts out more epic collections and omnibuses and get all the same issues that way? 
More importantly, I need to decide if I want to own every single Spider-Man collected edition ever published, or do I simply want every issue of Amazing Spider-Man in collected form? It's something I really need to make my mind up about before I go down the rabbit hole. Have you ever had to make similar decisions regarding your collection, whether it's comics, home video media, or anything with Star and Wars in the title? I'd really like to know yours truly, Dan. Um, well, it's an interesting question. I have recently made the decision, not recently, it was a couple of years ago, I've recently made the decision that with most things I don't need to have them twice. Um, there are exceptions to that rule, like I, I do pick up the British reprints of Spider-Man if I don't already have that particular issue because they're uh, an artifact of my childhood but with the amazing spider-man i did have all the marvel tales that reprinted the first 50 issues and when i got the omnibuses i sold them because i've got the omnibus as i said i have bought the masterworks so i've got a digital copy i think that's that's good enough for me now i'm hoping that they will continue forward with the omnibuses and give us a volume four and a five and so on and so forth but as it currently stands i have copies of every single issue of Amazing Spider-Man, either via the omnibuses, the essentials, and then the issues. I've got every issue of Amazing Spider-Man from issue 130 onwards. Um, so that's how I read them. I mean, if they do continue to do omnibuses, I'm certainly sure that I'll probably continue with the Amazing Spider-Man omnibus at least to to the end of Jerry Conway's run. That's probably where I'd, I'd perhaps call it a day. Um, but that's that's largely it. I mean, with Star Wars, I've got the Star Wars omnibuses for the Marvel Star Wars stuff. I don't need to have them as issues anymore or as, as copies of anything. And certainly, I've got the Blu-rays of all the Star Wars. The only, the only conceivable way I could think of buying Star Wars again was if they did release the original unaltered versions just to support that they'd done it. But I can't see myself buying them again. Like I say, I'm, I'm at the point now where I don't need multiple copies of things, whether different printings or whatever, unless it's special, like a treasury edition or the little pocket books. I'm busy trying to collect the pocket books that Marvel put out. I have the Spider-Man ones. I'm just looking at the bookshelf here, so I've moved away from the microphone. I have the Amazing Spider-Man ones, and then I have the two printings of the newspaper strip even though I have the hardcover, which contradicts what I just said. But I do love those 70s pocketbooks. Speaking, I have Doctor Strange and the Incredible Hulk. Speaking of which, Michael Bailey, the lovely Michael Bailey, sent me Mayhem in Manhattan and Crime Campaign, which were two prose novels in the Marvel pocketbook line. I am having the devil of a time trying to find the Fantastic Four one, Doomsday, which Marv Wolfman wrote, which I'm very interested in for obvious reasons for the Fantastic cast. And I'm very interested in the Incredible Hulk ones as well. Um, particularly the Spider-Man and Hulk team-up. Was it called Murder World? Something like that. If you or anybody listening to this comes across those books anywhere for reasonably priced in reasonable condition, let me know and I'm sure we can work something out. So sorry about that, Dan. I didn't mean to turn your question into a plug. But yeah, by and large, I'm happy just having copies of them. I don't need multiples anymore. Uh... Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much for emailing in Dan, Keith and Christopher. We will return next time. Couple of irons in the fire. Um, some of this may happen, some of it may not. But um, I won't mention what they are. I think, if all goes according to plan though, my next episode will be ranking the MCU. I have been doing that MCU rewatch that lots of people have been doing in the lead up to the release of... Um, Infinity War, and my list is significantly different 
to what it was or what it would have been before I wrote it. I'm just looking at it now. I've still got one more to watch. Uh, I've not rewatched Thor Ragnarok yet. I can't rewatch Black Panther because it's not on Blu-ray or DVD yet. And then Age of Ultron, uh, Age of Ultron, sorry, um, Infinity War. We'll have to see where that goes. But um, this was this was the amount that the films moved around on this list as I rewatched them was quite remarkable. So if all goes according to plan, that will be next. And I may try and do that before Infinity War comes out to tie in with Infinity War coming out that weekend as a shameless plug. As usual, the Palace of Glittering Delights is a proud, proud member of the uh, the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. We have a link uh, if you go over there and buy shit from Amazon. Through that link, we get a kickback, keeps the lights on, which is nice. I can be emailed at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com where you can tell me uh, what you thought of this episode, what you thought of any of the other episodes, or just let me know stuff you think may be interesting. You never know. You never know. It may pique my, my fancy. And I will see you next time for whatever next time ends up being. Everything's going to be okay, people. Don't worry. See you next time. Bye-bye.